I think the one thing you can't do is give someone, you know, what is a good or great shot for them too early. You have to know who they are as a player. You have to know how they tick. You have to have a relationship with them so they're going to trust you. I've done that in the past where I've had it too early. And now they're not playing free. They're not playing with this fluidity that you saw when you were recruiting them or that you saw early in practice. And they're thinking too much. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we are excited to welcome the head coach of Dartmouth men's basketball, Dave McLaughlin. Coach McLaughlin is here today to discuss shot quality data and simplifying it for players, exit and entry actions in half-court offense, and we talk RAM and flare screens pre-pick and roll, the pillars of a great culture, and when to double the post during the always fun start, sub, or sit. This July, we're excited to be heading to Las Vegas as we're partnering with and attending Pure Sweat Basketball's Pro Scout School on July 11th and 12th. Hosted in the backdrop of the NBA Summer League, this event allows coaches to learn and interact with the NBA's top executives, coaches, agents, and scouts by the way of keynote speakers, interactive breakout sessions, and one of the most popular networking socials during the summer league. Listeners of the podcast can save $125 off the ticket price by going to puresweatbasketball.com slash slapping glass. We'll see you in Vegas. And now, please enjoy our conversation with coach Dave McLaughlin. Thanks so much for coming on, Coach. We're really excited to talk to you today. I'm really excited to be here. Big, big fan of the podcast. Thank you very much, Thank Coach. You, I want to dive in right away with shot quality data. And I know it's something that you've been big on in the past, and maybe your thoughts have changed on this as the past few years have gone. And just your overall view on using shot quality data to help your offense. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's incredibly relevant in today's game, and especially at the highest levels. And I think it's really relevant at some higher levels because of the staffing you have and the amount of people you have to do certain things with video. So I can start off where we've done it in the past. In the past, and I learned this through my college coach, Coach Whitmore at Colby College in Maine. So he was the head coach there for 42 years. And besides my dad, second biggest male influence in my life and a big reason that I got into coaching. But I didn't realize he even did this when we were players, but afterwards he would show me some charts and some ratings and you would just go a zero through four scale. And it really worked when you think about it. And zero was a turnover. One was a shot you probably shouldn't shoot. Two was a long challenged two or a challenge shot, a significant challenge shot outside the paint. Three would be a good challenge three or a challenge shot in the paint. And then four would be an unchallenged shot in the paint, like layup or a transition three. So if you look at that, it's kind of a simple way to do it. When we started using that when I was at Stonehill, probably back in 2005 or 2006, and it was really effective for us because it showed winning offense. We were around a 3.1 and you know winning defense was around a 1.8. So it was really, really effective for us. One thing I started to add is fouls because when you look at the data, everything was a four but not a shooting foul. So I added a four plus. I didn't want to add a five because I thought that would really hurt the 
overall data we had in the past. So we added just a simple four plus and use that a lot when I was at Stonehill, use it a little bit when I went to Northeastern. When I first came here, we used it quite a bit. Came to find out with our staffing here at Dartmouth, you really have to dedicate one person to that. And at Stonehill, that person was me. And at Northeastern, that person was me. So now that I was moved to head coach of a division one program, it was just a little harder for me to do it consistently. We'd learned as a staff, we've had a ton of discussions on this every year when we have our, whatever you want to call it, staff retreat or those three days where you're talking about going into the summer or projects. This is always something that comes up. There's five people in the room. There's five different opinions on this. So we decided, especially the last few years, not to do it, but to encourage good versus bad shot, great shot and video. And especially coming off of COVID where we didn't have an Ivy League season, we had nine first year guys. So with nine first year guys, you know, we went into this year saying, how can we do, you know, tell them what good shots and great shots are, you know, outside of what the obvious ones are. We don't know their exact skill set or we don't know what they can do really, really well in the court. So without using exact numbers now, we really concentrate on two things. One is, are you getting a paint touch in the possession? And does that affect the shot quality in terms of if we get a paint touch, guys, look at the types of shots we're getting or look at the percentage of shots or transition early in the clock. Are you getting good quality shots early in the clock. And I think late clock, it's hard to do. I think you got to be really good or have a really significantly good player to get great shots consistent late in the clock. But I think if you look early in the clock and you look at paint touches, that was really, really helpful for us. Coach, on this, the zero to four scale, you started to get into it, but putting context to those scores and specifically, I want to focus on late clock, shot clock, where maybe one of your better players is you're going to ask him to take tougher shots or maybe he has more freedom than the other players. So is there a gray area at times in how you rank these shots or is it pretty black and white when you get to like late game, tougher shots for your better players? It's a huge gray area. And I think that's why you have to have one person doing it. That's the consistency of it. And you're right. So what if you shoot a foot on the line three, but there's a second left on the shot clock? Is that going to be a one or is that going to be a two? You know, Or shot fake, one dribble to the right and you're shooting a side step three. Well, if that's Brendan Barry this year, he was a top 10 three-point shooter in the country. I might give that a four. You never know. So I think it, yes, it is personnel based. And then beyond that, how do you explain that to your guys? That's the key is now you're having this extra layer of discussion that I don't know if you definitely need to have as a programmer, as a staff where, Hey, this is a good shot for him. Not a great shot for you. And you're showing the ratings, but you can still have those discussions individually. Hey, this is a strength of yours. Let's keep working on this. Let's make this a better shot. So you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly why you have to have one person. I think I feel pretty strongly, you know, making sure they're doing that review all the time. Coach, you mentioned the shot clock and transition. I want to zero in on a paint touch early. What do you rate as far as a paint touch? A dribble drive? Is it thrown into the post? What is a paint touch to you more specifically? Yeah. So I think you look at two things, paint touches and paint threats, right? So a paint threat is really some sort of action through the paint where there's no ball involved. So hard roll off a ball screen, hard refusal cut, burn cut from the corner, 45 cut, maybe a simple pass and hard full cut, right? All the way through. Just something that might make the defense react and might make a simple closeout go from a short closeout to a long closeout. So paint threats, we really look at those a lot. And then I think paint touches are the easiest one is a drive. Drive two feet in the paint, causing some sort of rotation, causing a kick. Now there's going to be some domino effect from that. Post-touch 
I used to designate post and paint touch, but if a good post player is catching the ball where he wants to, I'm going to count that as a paint touch. Because if it's a good post player, the defense is going to have to react. Or if the defense doesn't react, you're going to get a good shot. So I used to say, oh, he doesn't have two feet in the paint in the post catch, but if you have two feet in the paint in the post catch, you're going to score. <laughs> right. <laughs> like our rule is don't dribble. You have two feet in the paint, you're not dribbling on a post catch, turning and scoring. So now, you know, if you're catching it in the pro above the block and say in the pro lane line, pro lane line area, we're going to count that as a paint touch as well. And that's really encouraging the guys to play inside out basketball. And coach, following up on the paint threat, I think that's really interesting as you're talking about maybe transition offense. How are you talking to guys about, let's say a great shooter, let's say a guy who's a, you don't mind taking a quick shot or in transition, but also you want them to be active and maybe with a paint threat or cutting. How do you maybe add cuts or paint threats into transition within your offense? We say, you know, sacrifice equals success, right? So if you're a great shooter, and I'll go back to young man we had this year, Brendan Barry, he's guarded a certain way. Great shooters are guarded a certain way. So the way to loosen up is to move. So if it's in transition, when you're running down the floor, if you're in a spot, we're going to hold you. If you're in the corner and you're a shooter, you should stay there. You shouldn't cut because you know the defense is guarding you a certain way. Or if it's a two-sided break and you're on the wing or on the corner, you want to hold that spacing. But once you start getting into offense and we start getting maybe to paired action or whatever it is, a great shooter is going to want to come off that paired action to the ball all the time. I think as you get older as a great shooter, and what Brendan did this year for us was phenomenal, he learned how to curl, how to refuse, how to you know come in for a flare and all of a sudden he's wrapping or curling the flare to the rim. And because people are guarding him so tight, if you cut, you're going to pick up fouls and you're going to pick up multiple fouls a game. And that, you know, we had times we might have made six threes and a half. He didn't take any of those, but the way he, you know, caused success off his sacrifice in the cut, we were getting open threes. Coach, I'd like to maybe talk about the human element of shot quality analytics and data. And you touched on a little bit about conversations, but I know it is one of the more difficult conversations to talk about shot selection with guys. I'd like to ask specifically, though, about when you're trying to do shot quality data and have these conversations, not with your best players or people that know they're going to take a lot of shots and you maybe have to rein them in a touch or talk to them, but more the middle area where a talented, may say, young guy or someone that's you want to take the right shots, but you know you need to win, but you want them to make sure like, hey, here's the shots that are successful for you without maybe say hurting their confidence too much because you need them on the floor to win. So you had Steve Clifford on a few weeks back, who's a huge mentor of mine. And one of his favorite things he says is you have to be an expert on your team and you have to be the biggest expert on your players. So I think the one thing you can't do is give someone a, you know, what is a good or great shot for them too early. You have to know who they are as a player. You have to know how they tick. You have to have a relationship with them. So they're going to trust you. I think when you talk about young players, yes, those are the ones you usually have to have that conversation with the most. And I think it's just, I've done that in the past where I've had it too early and now they're not playing free. They're not playing with this fluidity that you saw when you were recruiting them or that you saw early in practice and they're thinking too much. Rather, let them make the mistake a few times. And yes, they might have to make it in a game and that stinks. But now say to them, hey, you see how hard of a shot this is? look at it and then show them what could happen if we don't take the shot you're getting two feet down or whatever it is you're driving the defense a little more and hey these are all the angles that we've talked about so i think beyond the shot quality it's the what could happen if that shot didn't go up you know what would the defense do if you took it a little deeper what have we worked on as a team and they usually can spit it back to you pretty quickly if you've done a good enough job with it hey well 
if I'm on the run and I'm going left to right and I'm getting to the rim, yeah, I shot a pull-up from above the foul line, not a great shot. But if I continue to get two feet down, then that defender on the strong side corner is staring at me. So maybe that guy can burn cut from the corner. Or the big that was in the shelf peeled under the rim. So maybe I have an open there to him. Or if I got two feet down with a stride stop, maybe I can pivot and I see the fill behind coming behind me. All these things that we do in drills. So I think when you show that and you show them how we have this quote, good is the enemy of great. It, usually I say to them, this is a good shot. It's a pretty good shot. I try to stay away from bad or awful, but let's get to great shots because we don't want to defend great shots. So why wouldn't we want teams that are defending us to defend great shots? Coach, maybe applying it more specifically, like you said, to coming back after COVID, you had nine new players. What did you find when at the point of the season could you start having these conversations with your players when you learned their tendencies, but probably more important when you had enough data, film, or evidence to kind of present it to their guys? I think you show it in front of the group and you show it with your better players taking bad shots and you grab your older, better players and say, hey, I'm going into a video today. Listen, I know this is an okay shot for you. Like, I understand why you shot it, but I'm going to show it in front of the team as not a great shot. Okay. And I need you to back me on this. And this is why. And, and, you know, you have that backing of your older players and they understand it. And I think that then can set the tone for the next time you're not showing the team in front of the team, a first shot with a younger player or one-on-one. So now the next time I'm in the film with the young player, I can say, Hey, remember when I showed that shot with yeah. so-and-so who's a senior, you know, like this is the same thing, you know, and it's just understand the value of if we can just get the ball a little deeper, make a quicker decision earlier, maybe not wait. On and read the defense so long and you're not playing 0.5 basketball, a lot of it usually goes back to the catch. Like, how are you catching the basketball? Because if you think about it, there aren't a ton of bad shots that are catch and shoot shots. There just aren't. True. You know, most yeah. bad shots are off the bounce. So how did you read the closeout? Where was your first dribble? Where was your footwork? Did you read the defense? So when you start looking at it that way, I think you're taking that you know, pretty poor shot and you're putting into development of the young man. You talked about the film. We talked about the stats. How about on the floor or in practice? You talked about there's some drills and stuff you'll do to kind of work on the good to great. There's always a time in practice early on in preseason when someone takes a questionable shot in practice that maybe doesn't know yet or is learning. For you and as a staff, how do you handle on the court maybe teaching shot selection to that player? Early in my career, I would have stopped practice. Like that was a bad shot and we would have talked about it. And then the next possession, I would have stopped practice again. Now I think you're letting it flow. A little bit and hopefully your staff's on the same page as what you think good and, and great shots are so now maybe it's just like hey come here come over here one of the someone from staff is grabbing like you know that we can get a better one than that so make sure we get a better one next time or even more importantly let it continue let the play continue and because what if it affects the way that person defends the next possession meaning they took a bad shot they missed now they're not defending as hard so now you have this two things that you can teach to the whole team just because you let it flow a little bit. In terms of drills, I just think it's always important to talk on penetration, like in all drills, like really teach what your communication is off the ball on penetration, because sometimes there's a bad shot because there is no option, because your teammates did not move, because they were too worried about the ball not reading their man and how their man was reacting to the ball on help. So I, I think that is probably one of the biggest things. If you can teach communication off of penetration, and if you can really teach speed of cuts, you know, I think both of those things are going to help you to get to great shots consistently. Coach, when you say communication, do you just mean the off-ball players reading the ball or is there actually verbal communication you want them shouting out or yelling to the penetrator? Yeah, I want them shouting out verbal communication to the penetrator. So 
if you are going away from the ball, if you're below the elbow and you're going away from the ball, or if you're going away from the basket line, I should say to the corner, that's a drift. Like we are going to, you know, say that as a drift. If you are coming from the corner on up, that is, you know, straight corner up, we call that a lift. If you're going past the wing, you know, we're going to call that probably a fill or a fill behind, you know? So I think it's really important because if you're not communicating, you're probably not there. And even now in the spring, we do just simple drills to warm up with the team out there and it's three on oh and it's transition, but we're communicating all penetration actions. So it's just really, really important for them. Hey coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's sgpod at instatsport.com slash form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Transitioning to now on the court, more some tactical stuff. We'd like to talk about ways that you exit a set, let's say, uh, offensively. So you drop a set or you have something that you run and it's just not there. There's no open shot or no advantage created right away. How you teach your team to keep flowing into whatever it is that you teach to flow into. Honestly, I think this is one of the hardest things to do on the court. And I think a lot of this is talent driven in terms of, you know, if you have a really good player and you can put them in a ball screen, awesome. Good for you. If you have a really good post player and you can get them the ball anywhere 12 feet from the basket, perfect. So I think what you have to start with is Typically late in the clock when you're exiting and you're either centering the ball or getting the ball out, it's usually beyond the three-point line, usually above the wing, typically. That means you're probably going to go into some two or three-man action. So I think role identifying with those, because we've all been there. So first time in practice, shot clock's down to nine, the wrong guy has the ball, the wrong guy's taking three dribbles backwards, and someone's coming into a ball screen. And you're like, okay, I'll let it go, but that's probably not what we want. So I think what you have to start doing is who is really good in ball screens, who should be using ball screens, who's really good in dribble handoffs, who's really good in quick action where you're just hitting someone and cutting as hard as you can, and then who's good in handbacks. So now I throw it, and now as a, you know, probably a post player, if I hit him, I can go get it and then go. And then who are your really good shooters that maybe aren't great driving, but you can put them into go screens? So I think if you can identify those areas and you do that early and you teach that skill set early and talk about it early, now that exit strategy becomes a little easier. You know, so now it's like, hey, we got someone right here on the wing. We talked about him being a ghost screener. Go set a ghost screen. And now look, because the corner's here, we have that driving line that we're in really good shape. Or the ball goes here. Why wouldn't we go set a ball screen? We talked about him being one of the top two guys on the team in a ball screen. Why wouldn't we do it? And that seems easy, right? But it's not because they have to buy into that. You have to work on it. And it's hard to do, but I do think identifying that is important because now you know who is and isn't going to use certain actions. So I love all the stuff you talked about as far as how you can exit and who and whatnot. I think they always, like you mentioned, and the harder part as a coach is reorganizing or getting them to recognize what of those actions to go to after you've run something and they're not in perfect position. They're not in perfect alignment to say run stuff and quickly getting to that action. So are there ways and 
through film or on the court that you help them understand where and how to flow to those things? Yeah, because hopefully the action is pretty similar to what you have in your flow, right? So if there's a side ball screen as a man below the ball, you know, you're going to know that that guy's probably going to lift based on the coverage. There's probably going to be some sort of weak side exchange based on the coverage. So if it's a flat screen in the middle, you know, we know a lot of teams are typically weaking us or will be weakening. So can we get one person on the left side or do you want two people on the left side because someone can make that skip pass because that's the person that's helping on the roll to the rim. So, you know, I think a lot of those, you should have worked on those spacings already or the guy should have a feel what that looks like. And, and I think that's important. You know, one thing we do and it's kind of haphazard, but it works a little bit is we'll just put guys, we'll just run them out or have them at half court in a circle around me. We'll have the defense out and I'll just throw the ball somewhere and say there's 11 seconds on the clock or I'll, you know, and then maybe I throw it to the deep corner. And again, you do that dribble for the first time, that guy from the deep corner is taking it and dribbling it to the top of the key and asking for a ball screen. That's what's going to happen. Where, what if we can just move it one pass to two pass and all of a sudden we're coming up into a action. And I think the other thing we've done is, and I've even put it on the board before games, here are our three late clock actions that we've worked on the last two days. Because you probably have eight, nine, or 10. And so, okay, here are the three based on how we've either scouted the opponent based on what's working for us recently. Maybe it's a new action no one's seen. Maybe we want to do a stack ball screen in the middle. Maybe we want to set a back screen off the stack ball screener and we want to stay consistent with that. Maybe we want to go screen to a flat screen. You know, So you have a name for each of those and we put that on the board and this is what we're looking to do. Now, the other side of it, instead of exiting and you have these actions where you're going to exit, say, a set, how about now coming into the offensive side of the ball, missed shot, made shot, whatever it is, let's say you're just flowing into your offense and distinguishing between just flowing into your offensive flow through maybe some of these actions that are also exits versus setting it up and running a set play. How do you distinguish that and think about that? I think the first thing is you can leave no doubt with your team where they're supposed to run in transition. Because if there is any question marks, the spacing is not going to be great. And we've done a few different things. And again, that's going to be one of our projects in the offseason. And I think that's one that I definitely want to do is playing with a little more tempo, what exactly we want our break to look like versus what it's looked like in the past. And we've done a version of the Davidson break where we've had someone right at the dome, top of the key. We've had someone at the rim and tight corners. And that's been successful for us, but that doesn't mean your personnel suits that or your the way to get into your flow out of that is the best. And I found when we did that, the most important thing after your transition is how are you going to, once everyone knows their spots they're supposed to go to, how do you now keep the tempo going in that possession? And because the defense is on its heels, if you're running the floor hard, you know, and the, the defensive presence isn't exactly where it should be for the opponents, how do you keep the ball moving in an appropriate way where everyone knows if a ball's moved or a decision's made or a cut's made, what the next decision would be? I think we've all seen those possessions that you get frustrated with when you're in pretty good spacing and all of a sudden you make a pass and then there's just like a lack of movement and, you know, that person now brings the ball up and centers it. It's like, okay, I need to do a better job of this because obviously we're not flowing into our transition to that. So I do think it's important that your team has an ability to flow, which means you can teach your transition routes, but you also have to teach what's happening after that so you can work on getting into it. In regards to what's happening after that, is it kind of the same thing we talked about with the exits? Maybe just understanding the skill of each player and the relationship to each other or kind of scripting or making calls or giving them options like, you know, we can flow into a pistol or a way screen, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think it goes down to your spacings, right? So I think you have to identify spacings for your team. 
So if we have a five out spacing where our big man's at the dome, we need to call that something. Or if we're a four out one in spacing and he's on the block, we need to call that something. Or if there's a spacing where someone's at the elbow and that's a version of five out. So how, when you get to each of those spacings, what are the reads that you have? And so how do you get to those spacings out of transition? And I think that's the most important thing because when you get to those spacings, it's all a version of home for you, right? I feel comfortable now. Now we're good. But how do you teach to get to those quickly and to get to those decisions quickly? Because now once you're there, everything's comfortable and you can get to certain reads. And now it might not be where you have to call something. And it usually isn't because, you know, the ball goes here, the guy's flashing into a certain area, you hit the elbow. We're in this sort of spacing. We know exactly what we can get to out of this. Coach, one specific part of your offense, once you do get into the flow that I'd actually just love to pick your brain about real fast is connecting the Princeton offense to on-ball screening concepts. And what are your thoughts on using elements of Princeton and also using ball screen movement within your half-court offense? I like it and I like what we've done. And the thing about having a version of both is that you can really play to your strengths with your personnel. And you can work on having some sort of screening action you know, where hopefully it's a little bit unpredictable. If it's not working, then you're going to be able to get into a quick two to three man action. And a lot of the spacing allows you to either get into ball screens or handoffs or handbacks that we've talked about, but also three man actions where you're going handoff into a ball screen. And then you always know with that, what the spacing is going to look like on the weak side. So how are we going to counter? What's our next action going to be? So it is a lot. You're adding two dynamic versions of an offense. You could play either way without one or the other. And, you know, it's just an ability to have both. And it is a lot, but I do think it allows you to play to guys' strengths. And then by the end of the year, you're probably leaning one way or the other a little more just based on, you know, the success you've had, who's been on the court. But the one thing I will say about both is you do get paint threats and paint touches if you're running hard, if you're cutting hard, if you're setting good screens, and a variety of guys can play in both those systems. Coach, you mentioned something about setting screens within the Princeton and all that. With so many things being slipped or ghosted now, how do you maybe teach the difference between sticking to screen versus slipping or ghosting out of these Princeton or on-ball options? Yeah, I think you got to know the the coverage on some. If you you know talking from an offensive point of view, like what if we know a team is going to be drop against us? You know, ninety percent of the screens. This is on-ball, right? So ninety percent of the screens are probably contact screens. If we know a team is looking to window us, we're changing the angle and going low. If we know a team is switching, we're not setting a screen. You know, we're trying to set that screen way before the defender so there's no roll under on the screen, meaning the defender can't roll under the roller because that's how you clog that up. If we know a team is trying to put two on the ball, then you have to teach your guys, okay, we're setting some and we're not setting some. And I can't tell you when to do it. That's, you know, you figure it out a little bit. With the ghost screen, I think that is, you know, a little bit of process and you make mistakes because you're going to get an illegal screen. You're going to set it too close. You're going to, you know, go at the wrong angle based on how the defender's going. So I think with that one, it's just in any screen, it's how is your act? Do you have an act? Does, does everyone in the world think you're setting a screen? And are you going to it with an act? And then are you getting out of it quickly? I think that's the biggest thing in screens. How quickly can you get out of a ball screen? We've seen those ones where you set the screen and then you just get out so slow and you're like, oh man, come on. If you just get out of that screen a little quicker, you know, there are a lot more things could happen out there. And those are those guys that play offense with energy, right? That's how you can affect the game without having the ball in your hands by being a great screener. And all the film that you guys watch and all these wonderful people that you've had on in videos and, you know, how many can you say, oh, this guy is a great screener? It just doesn't come along that often. And, you know, man, he rolls out of screens like crazy. It's just those are, 
things you have to teach. It's not necessarily something you're going to see, at least for us on the recruiting trail. Coach, just following up on that, how are you guys trying to make better screeners? Again, I think it's two different things on and off the ball. I think they are very different. I think when it's off the ball, you are talking about contact. Still want to have an act, but you're talking about sprinting with a mission to have contact. We just showed video the other day before a workout. We just showed some NBA clips and we showed them Clay Thompson getting open for three-point shots off of hard screens. You know, we said to the guys, name us three better shooters in the world. So how is this dude getting open in an NBA playoff game? Because it's a great screen. It's the only way. And contact screens are a real thing. And then for us, again, I'm talking a little more passionately about this because we've just been doing it in workouts the last three days. You know, one to the ball, one to the basket. It's an easy concept, but man, you need reps on that. You know, if you're setting a regular pin screen and the guy's coming towards the ball, get to the basket. I mean, that screen then becomes a paint threat. And so I just think those concepts over and over and over again off the ball. I think on the ball, it's the ability to understand how different coverages impact what type of screen you're setting. And I think it's the user of the screen has to, has to make sure he's setting that screen up as often as possible. And, you know, usually hopefully refusing it to the highest level you can. Coach, if I can just stay on this thread with screening, I'm particularly interested in just in when you know they're going to go under, if they're going under screening angles, screening positions, and the rescreen, what are you guys teaching to attack the under and pick and roll? So I think the angle, you set it lower and the angle completely changes, right? So, you know, you want to think of your, the smaller your back, probably to the opposite corner, if it's a side pick and roll, and you want to set that thing low. Because the way we'll teach it, if we're in that coverage, right, and, and we're trying to go under, you just have to guard the ball. A good defensive team will then just go over that screen. But if you decide you want to still go under, then it's a race. You're going under for a reason. That guy's probably not shooting a three off the dribble. So now it's a race. Can you get to the elbow based on where the screen is before that defender? And so I think talking about a race is really important. If you find that you're not having success there, then I think sent the team into the opponents into a secondary ball screen coverage right away. And again, this based on the ball handler and who's using the screen. So I think you come off of it all of a sudden, how good is that screener at turning into an outside screen? How much room do you have? You're coming off of side pick and roll and all of a sudden he comes into an outside screen. Now you're dribbling to the sideline. Nobody in help has moved that much. But what if you can throw it back and cut off of him really quickly, like some right. sort of handback scenario? So I think what people try and do is flip or twist the screen. And sometimes you just want to take the defender with you, get the ball back and maybe get out of there in some sort of action that way. Maybe play with the next guy. I just think it's your preference. And I think it goes to personnel as well. Some guys are good enough. Like I'll set him seven screens in a row. I don't care. Like eventually he's going to find the hole we need in this coverage. You mentioned kind of the big reshaping up if they're going under in this case or earlier when you said, you know, one on the ball, one on the rim, or if the guy cuts, I'm assuming then you want the screener opening up to the ball. So just working with your screener off ball, on ball, but understanding to shape up to the ball and then kind of what his reads or the, what he should be understanding when he's getting the ball and what's going to happen next. Exactly. So just take a simple pin screen, right? Or, you know, floppy action. Someone comes off the floppy and curls it hard. So he's going to the basket. So now one to the ball. You shouldn't just, most screeners are just going to open up and show their hands. No, sprint to space. Sprint to space because there's probably a reaction on that curl. And then if you can shoot it, that's a great shot. Or if you can't, now we're getting into next action, whatever that next action is and whatever you decided is. I think that it's such a simple concept. And you know, we say, hey, the person who screens the best is usually the most open. It's okay to teach them that because every single set you run that doesn't have an on-ball action, you're going to have some sort of screening action like that. So picture all this time we spend on guarding these sets and these screening actions. 
What if it is just a really good screen? And what if it's a really good reaction to how the defense is guarding the screen? It becomes a different set play. And that's something that I need to do a better job with our group. And I've realized that this spring and, you know, next week when we get to workouts, we're literally going to just bring it back a little bit. Just talk about that, that exact concept. Coach, this has been unbelievable so far. Thank you for all your thoughts. We want to transition now to a segment that we call start, sub, or sit. We'll give you three different topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one, and then we'll discuss from there. You have not heard these, so if you're ready, coach, we'll jump right in. I'm ready. Okay. This first one, and this might be a somewhat unfair or impossible question, but has to do with pillars of a great culture and building an environment or building a culture that, that you would want, that you'd be proud of within your program. And so these are three different values that a culture can be built on. Likely you'd like to start all these, but I won't put words in your mouth. Start, sub, or sit, a culture of trust, a growth mindset slash learning culture, or built on resilience, handling adversity. So start, sub, or sit, three different pillars of a culture. This is a good one. So none of those are any of our core values, which is fine. So if there was one there, I would have had to pick that one right away. But I would say I'm going to start trust. And this is why, because if you trust someone, that means you have a relationship with them. And that means a relationship has been built. So whether that's coach to coach, or let's just talk about all the constituents, right? Coach to administration, coach to admissions, right? Or player to player, player to coach, the real important ones. There's a trust there, then you can talk about almost anything else and say, you know, hey, you have to have a growth mindset here and this is why, or we have to be more resilient here. This is why. So I'm going to start trust because I kind of changed the definition and turned it into relationship with you guys. So. <laughs> Love it. And I think the next one, I think resilience because you don't have to learn from everything, you know, but you do have to learn how to get to the next play, right? So a growth mindset might not mean next play player, but resilience is, okay, what is the next play? What is the next most important play? So I think I would sub that. And the growth mindset, I mean, there's a lot. Some of the best books ever have been written about it and things like that, but you know, I'll sit that one. Okay. You said none of these were your core values. I'd love to know what your core values are. Sure. Acronym for our core values is be a pro. So it's belief, excellence, accountability, positivity, relationships, and ownership. And one thing I'll say about that is you can have core values, but if your team can't spit them back to you or understand how important it is through tough times to have them, then they're not really core values, right? I heard on Reddit, uh, it's something called the dead sleep test. Can you wake anyone up in your organization in the middle of a dead sleep? And can you ask them about your core values? And can they spit it back to you? And then I feel like our guys can. The other thing is our athletic director, Peter Roby here, has said when your values have to be values of conviction and not values of convenience, because your values are so easy to turn to when things are going well. Hey, let's be positive. This is awesome. We just won by 20 and the food's really good on the bus after the game. But what about when things aren't going well? You know, that's when they have to be values of conviction. Coach, over time, did you always kind of have these six core values? Where did you start? Because I know with like anything with values, rules, if you don't emphasize one, the more you put, the more on you to reinforce. Yeah. So it's an evolution. You're absolutely right. So I would say be a pro. It's plastered everywhere around here in our team room. It was in my office, I'd show you, but I actually don't have it anywhere in here, believe it or not. But, you know, that probably came about three years ago, right? So it's not something where, hey, I took over the job and it's going everywhere. No, I was still trying to figure out what was important to me and why. 
So every one of those has some sort of example and maybe some that I know this is important to us and why, or maybe something that I read or something that really stuck out to me, or maybe it was just an instance with one team one year where we really were dealing with that a lot. Now I feel really good about these. And I think what really solidified it for me, talk about professional development. And I went to an advanced leadership program at Tuck, which is a business school here at Dartmouth, top, I think it's number two business school in the country or top five, whatever it is. And it was just a week long thing on leadership strategic initiatives called the LSI program. And I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for COVID because I was in it nine to 10, five straight days. I would never leave my program for that. But you know what? It made me better as a coach. And I think hopefully made our program better. So that was a big part of his being with people from literally all over the world that were learning how to become better leaders. And that solidified a lot of things for me. Coach, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, your coach at Colby, Dick Whitmore. I'm wondering what you learned from him about culture building that you have in your program now. I think work ethic, you know, I think, you know, when you see the head coach is working hard and is prepared and can explain the why, why you're doing certain things or why decisions are made. I think the ability to really hold guys accountable through a great coaching style and getting guys on the same page, you know, where you're competing yet you still like each other, yet winning is important, but so are other things. And I think relationships. I learned Coach Whitmer and I didn't necessarily have a great relationship when I played. And as I got older, it became better. But you know, when I told him I wanted to coach my senior year, I came into his office senior spring, which I'm sure people do to coaches all the time. I like your lifestyle. I want to coach because they <laughs> see practice and they have no idea what you're doing the other right. 22 hours a day. Right. No idea. I said, you know what? Here are some questions come back and see me in a week. So I was like, all right. And went and answered the questions and came back and talked through. And he's like, all right, looks like you really want to coach. And from that moment forward, there hasn't been a major decision I've made in like a career or coaching that he hasn't been involved in on some level. He's just been you know, awesome to me. And I think lastly, he showed what a great alumni network is. And I think that is so important to not just have your program and the guys that are there, but how are you engaging your alumni? How are they involved with the program? And we're very fortunate here at Dartmouth. We just have some absolutely phenomenal alums. And you know, we want to make that very special, something that actually defines who we are as a basketball program, our alumni network. Out of curiosity, what were some of the questions that he asked you when you were deciding to be a coach? You know, I can't remember all of them. One of them was, do you want to make money? Are you worried about money? Right? I think legitimately that was one. Yeah. One was something to the effect of it's a profession that doesn't always reward hard work like other professions. Are you okay with that? And another, and again, I'm paraphrasing on a big level. Yeah, yeah. And one was, are you okay not being in a great mood, but you know, yeah. taking the good moments and enjoying them, you know, much less <laughs> in the bad moments and just commiserating on those moments. So I, you know, I think those were probably three that summarize the questions the best. <laughs> sure. Coach, just now being in the position you're in and looking back when younger coaches or ex-players come to you saying, I want to get into coaching, do you ask them the same types of questions or have the same types of conversations with them? I ask them why. Tell me why. I'm always curious about what their answers are. You know, it could be anything where I want to impact this or I want to do this or I like what I see. And I just want to hear what is your answer? And I'll never turn anyone away. What I'll say is, you know, you don't have to coach college to impact the game. You can work a job and then you could be a great youth coach because we need terrific youth coaches in this country. We need people who can really help certain age groups in terms of finding a love for the game. I think that is incredibly important. So I think there's a way to impact it without necessarily being at the college level, but 
I'm not ever going to really turn someone away from that. I'm going to just really keep pushing them and explaining why you want to do it. Hey coaches, this segment of Start, Sub, or Sit is brought to you by our friends at Practice Planner Live. Practice Planner Live has combined all the components of effective, efficient, and time-saving practice planning into one easy-to-use platform, saving your most valuable resource as a coach, time. Ditch the Word docs and the scribbled legal pads for a simple point-and-click experience to build your drill directory, collaborate with your staff, and create clean, customized, and shareable practice plans in minutes. With over 75,000 practice plans created at the professional, collegiate, high school, AAU, and youth levels, Practice Planner Live is proven to raise the level of organization and effectiveness of any program. Listeners of the podcast can visit practiceplannerlive.com and register for a free 21-day trial and enter the promo code SGPOD to get 10% off your subscription. Thanks for listening. And now back to our conversation. Okay, coach, we call this one tough to teach. And this has to center around being a good inside outside team. So being able to play the ball inside and out tough to teach the post entry pass, the post player being a threat, being someone who can draw a reaction from the defense, or lastly, the post player being able to pass the ball out. Yeah. So I'm going to start post player being a threat. Okay. That is hard. So you have to have a certain skill set, right? You have to have a feel over your left or right shoulder. You have to have a feel for how to finish through contact. And a lot of that, because you can't create everything for a post player. You can teach them positioning. You can have a few sets, but at some point, and we've all been there, if you find a post player that can go over either shoulder and is willing to have contact and is willing and wants the ball in his hands, like, I don't think I've taught all that to someone. You know, someone's always come with some of those qualities and you know, I feel like we do a great job developing forwards here, but you know, they have to have something in the tank, right? That you can develop. I think the second thing is, you know, I would sub post passing. I think that is incredibly underrated. I think when you see post players who have a really high assist rate, that's usually one of the first things I look at in a scout. And when I see that, I'm like, uh oh, this isn't good. <laughs> like we can't guard them one on one. This this stinks. Like you want to be able to guard post players one on one. And when you can't, you're either going to say, okay, you know what, we're going to give up eight for 14 shooting from two and we're going to live with it or we're going to figure out how to send two and we're going to rotate out of it. But that passing, that's hard. It's hard because one, you don't work on it a lot. You don't spend a lot of time on it. One thing we started doing this year, we have a terrific post player returning next year. So I actually grabbed some volleyball equipment from the gym. And there's one thing that's a square that's probably seven or eight feet in the air and it's a four by four foot square. So when they're you know, in volleyball, picture hitting the ball and you're trying to get it in that square, right? If you're practicing. So we've been working on that with skip passes. So I'm rolling the rack out and we're entering the ball. We'll talk about post entries in, in a second because I'm sitting that one, obviously, but <laughs> we're putting the ball in and we have a pad and we're just having them work on pivots and how many out of 10 can you get in the net? And because I know how valuable it is for him to be a great post passer because he's very effective in the post, but it's really, really hard to develop. You got to work on it quite a bit. I'm sitting post-entry because I don't know where I was recruiting, but I was on a treadmill last summer and I heard someone on your podcast say, throw it at his face, the post-entry. Yeah. Throw it at, and I was like, that is brilliant. <laughs> throw it at his face. All I could picture is, and we had Will Tony on our staff who used to be at Davidson and he would say the same thing, but we hadn't really, really adopted it. Right. And I was listening to this. And I'm like, yeah, that makes complete sense. And I remember instantaneously now you ask any one of our guys on the team, 
where do you throw it to? We throw it to their face. Why? Because if he doesn't catch it, it's going to break. No, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty simple concept, right? So I remember like the whole fake high, go low, wrap yeah, around, yeah. you know, all that stuff. No, throw it at his face. That was a game changer for me. I, I literally treadmill before a recruiting event early in the morning. I was listening to that. And I'm like, this is awesome. I believe that was Landry Kosmalski from Swarthmore. Exactly what it was. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Coach, I want to start with being a post-threat. What's important? What are you teaching with them playing through contact, finishing through contact, being able to pass through contact, just how you are helping your bigs absorb contact and continue to play? I think first and foremost, how to catch the ball with two hands. And when you have the ball with two hands, how you then need to be in a stance. Okay, so let's just take a simple, simple drill where we have a burn series where there's someone giving you a basketball and you take it out of their hands and you're just shooting right-hand jump hooks and there's someone rebounding it and giving it back to the person. So I'll have them do that drill. And then every once in a while, I'll just take a pad and I'll whack them and they're completely off balance. I'm like, no, this isn't going to work because you have to be balanced. So I think just a simple showing them the importance of being balanced and having the ball up to the ability where the second thing we teach is now pivots. I don't think pivots are taught enough with you know post players because there will rarely be anything that goes on in the post where you don't use a pivot. Rarely. Yeah. If it is, it's a layup. It's just a flat out layup. So we just simply go through pivots with them. It's real simple. If we're doing a front pivot or we just say we're trying to punch someone out. And if we're doing a reverse pivot, we're saying they're trying to break their nose with our elbow. You know, it's just like, so getting that ball movement, that balance going. And I think third is how to go low and get a basketball. You know, so how can you reach down? Because most people will reach down and they'll bend at the waist and you're going to be off balance. So now how can you bend down and pick up a basketball? And we'll actually work on that. So that series then can go into any drill that you work on. Hey, are you balanced? Are your feet wide enough to do a good pivot? You know, are you bending at the waist to grab the ball when it comes to you? So I think that is really, really important. And I think the next thing is important is teaching guys how to score without dribbling. So how to get position without dribbling. Because sure, you can have a really good post player, you can take multiple dribbles, but I think you really can punish a team when you can teach positioning and you can teach how to read the D and you know how to do it off certain actions. And you can do that off almost anything, whether it's receiving a screen, setting a screen, rolling in transition, running to the rim. So I think that ability is, can you score without a dribble? And then we don't necessarily do a good enough job of this. We have to do a better job of this. I do. But I think teaching offensive rebounding because everyone's sending at least one to the glass, right? I haven't heard of anyone sending none to the glass. You know, I've, sent, I've heard a lot of one, two, but are you teaching them rebounding angles? What it means to wedge in the weak side, what it means to swim, what it means never to go under the rim because you're never going to get the ball. Are you charting that? Like what's your percentage of rebounding that you're going after that we have charted this year for them? And that's something we have to you know really get better at because that's you win the easy basket quotient that way. Coach, with the offensive rebounding, are you teaching anything on them to watch the trajectory of the ball? with the offensive rebounding? Not so much trajectory, but where it's shot from. If it's shot from the right wing, you should probably be somewhere on the left side, outside the restricted. And we always go back to defensive rebounding. We always say, you should never have two feet in the restricted if you're going to be a good defensive rebounder ever. So if an offensive rebounder, how do we get someone to have a foot or two feet in the restricted? Because you're going to have a better chance to get the angle of that ball. I think the only team that doesn't send one to the glass is my Monday night men's league team. We just (laughs) shoot the jumper and start getting back on defense. Um, Coach, my quick follow-up on this is just flipping the other side of the ball, going back to shot quality and a post-catch now. And if you're playing against a guy that is a good scorer in the post, 
your decisions, knowing that, you know, a tough two is hard to score at all the time and the shot quality analytically is not as high as say an open three or whatnot. What do you do with a great post player who can score from the defensive side? I got to look at his assist rate and I have to look at his turnover rate. The first two things before I answer that question, you have to know what those two things are. Because if he has a really high assist rate and a low turnover rate, you're probably playing one-on-one basketball. Okay. He has a really low assist rate and a high turnover rate, you're probably sending two to the ball. Okay, perfect. Coach, I'm sure a lot is depends, but how do you like the double? From the baseline, on the dribble, on the catch, from the opposite wing, You know, what's kind of your preference if you're going to double? I think it's just like ball screen coverages. If you have one coverage, teams will figure it out. You have to have multiple coverages. You have to be able to use multiple coverages in a game. You have to not be afraid to. That's one thing that I've gotten better. It's not because of me. It's because of my staff, my assistant coaches who have pushed it to really make sure I'm not as risk adverse as I used to be. And, and you know, like I think you have to make people uncomfortable. And part of that, so to make an offense player uncomfortable, I probably have to get uncomfortable as a coach doing certain things that I haven't normally done in the past. So if we stay on this trap, will you, after a couple minutes, try to change it up? Or if he starts to figure it out, then you'll change it up. I guess what's determining, let's say, how you're going to double him differently? Yeah, just how they are reading it, right? So at some point, if they realize maybe a double's coming from the baseline, so they're looking to skip it real early, or maybe diving on the 45 to cause two versus one, then you're like, okay, maybe we can go a little more from the strong side now, or maybe we can go from the opposite slot, whatever it might be. Or, hey guys, this is working. We're good. We're good. And then now he's playing a little tentative now. Okay, don't double two possessions. So sometimes it's not a different coverage. Sometimes it's just don't double and, you know, keep him kind of off balance that way. Coach, this last one has to do with a pre pick and roll action or pre on ball screen action. So you're playing against, let's say, a great post defender or someone who's good in either drop or switching or hedging, and you just want to mess with that big. So you're going to do some sort of screen or some sort of action before the pick and roll to dislodge or move that big. So start, sober, sit these three different actions before the on-ball screen. The first one is setting a flare screen with your big and then sprinting into an on-ball. The second is sending a ram screen by a guard for your big and then sprinting the big into the on-ball. And the third one is faking a handoff or faking a get action and then throwing it ahead to the next player before that on ball screen so start sober sit those three actions it's a good one i think a lot of it depends on the skill level of the forward because if you have the right forward then i think any sort of fake action especially with the ball in his hands is awesome but let's just say that we don't have that specific skill set i think a screen into a screen is incredibly valuable so that ram action is really really good because we always say talk about separation right when you go into a screen you have to separate no matter what the coverage is can you separate quickly? So I think a ram screen allows you to separate quickly and it might turn into a double or triple switch, which is always good as well. So I'm going to start that. I'm going to sub the fake DHO because I do think that's great action. I think that it's really hard for a defender who in a two-man action, in a ball screen action, like you said, a great maybe drop defender, he's naturally going to take that one step over to the ball. He's naturally going to do it. So, and I think what that does is that allows now the offensive player to make even more reads on the second pick and roll. So one read could be the, oh no, just take it and go. But even on the second one, that's going to open more slip actions probably than anything, because now you're going to have a greater angle and the defender's not going to be, you know, ball you basket on that. And I think I would sit the flare because the only way that's really going to help is if you curl the flare to the rim which is in, in essence a back screen into a screen, mm-hmm. I would sit that one. If that's how you were talking about it in yeah, terms yeah. of the big setting of flare. 
you know, I, I think that you can stay in a drop type coverage and still guard, still track, in essence, still track and guard a flare action. Coach, so all three great actions, obviously. You mentioned that in the Ivy League, you do face a lot of drop coverage. And so sometimes with some of these, like a big that's already going to be in drop, and then you set a ram screen, and now he's just in a deeper drop, I guess, or he's even farther off the ball screen. Reading that as a guard, when that guard comes off and your big's going to roll and the drop is even deeper, let's say, because you've screened or you've moved them somewhere else, just a decision to attack, to throw it ahead, to roll. Or to shoot that jumper, or are you comfortable with, say, a mid-range coming off that screen? Depending on the personnel, I'm okay with the mid-range against that because I think you have to hold teams accountable to that. You know, I think that's really important. But I also think the deeper he gets, the harder it is for him to react back to his man. You know, I think you're probably going to be in some sort of situation where there's going to be a veer then. I think beers on drops are great because we're not necessarily looking to attack the big. Maybe some personnel are, but now all that is, is you just basically turn that into a late switch, which is just like a hard roll, right? So now I'm looking to probably throw the ball back where it came from and get the ball inside. You know, one thing that we've seen that I haven't done a lot of is, you know, getting to that rim and then that cut back dribble to a seal, Mm -hmm. you know, like he's called the old Gortot screen and that's very effective. And that's going to happen when it's a late beer like that as well. I do think there's some advantages and and you're right. You have to work on that drop at different levels. I think it's very, very important. And that's hard to do. It's hard to spend a lot of time on that during the season. So I think if you're going to work on a pick and roll reaction, I think the best time is to show it before practice. Here's what we're doing. Here's why. Here's some video clips. Okay. Now we're going to put you in many of these scenarios today. Let's make sure you try to do what we're showing you now. Coach, with the drop, how long do you want the big maybe holding that screen? You know, in terms of, is it dependent on the ball handler, whether you want the ball handler maybe to get deep or once the ball handler kind of clears his shoulder to get out and start rolling? We're going to talk about contact first. You know, we're going to talk about separation quickly and then getting into the screen as quick as you can. So I think the amount of contact is going to dictate the answer to the question you just asked, right? So I think if you set a good contact screen and we have clearance, then yeah, get out hard and roll as quick as you can after that contact because you did your job you got the defender to now trail on the drops and now we're making the big make a decision and we're making them communicate when the defender stays on the hip and can stay physical that makes it a little easier for the defense when the defender doesn't get screened and can blow up the screen there's no decision to be made so i think the contact screen will dictate how quickly you get in and out of it all right coach you're off the start or sit hot seat Thanks for going through all those. That, yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Those are some detailed ones. So we yeah. appreciate you being so thorough. So coach, we got one more question for you before we close. This has been really fun for us. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Absolutely. The question we ask all the guests at the end here is what's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? Well, I don't know if I would call it an investment, but this is kind of a softball because it's an easy answer. I met my wife a sophomore year at Colby and She's been there every step of the way. Coaching is an incredibly rewarding, but incredibly hard profession. I remember, you know, 1997, my senior spring, this is really before mail merge or email. We are hand stuffing envelopes to about 300 schools nationwide with a form letter from me asking for a grad assistant spot. And I just remember, you know, the two of us in a dorm room or a common room up at Colby doing this. And then I remember, you know, my first job being a grad assistant at Suffolk and how we thought that was really cool and how she was always invested in what are the guys doing? How's this going? How did it go with meeting with the AD? And then I remember transitioning to Wesleyan University in Connecticut after that. I was making $2,000 a year and she was living at home in Winchester and she was paying for my rent and 
got me a car so we could make this work. And they go on and on and on. And then every up and every down, you have someone with you. But even better, you have someone that really, you know, keeps you straight. We had a horrific loss this year. And, you know, I remember getting home and that Sunday morning, I just was not engaged in any way, shape or form. And she came to me and she says, hey, you have till four o'clock to get your head out of you. You know what? Go to work, come back, be a dad. I'll see you then. And I was like, oh, okay. And I remember going to work, having a productive day, coming back. And so that's what it is. That allows our family. It allows me, you know, to function at a level that we need to. So yeah, she's been awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>